It's almost Easter. Are you ready? You know, they did a big study uh, a while back that showed that if you ask 10 people that never go to church, 10 people that are your friends or your co-workers, if you ask them to come on Easter, 7 out of 10 of those people will come. Did you know that? So I, I think that's amazing. They said any other week of the year, even Christmas, it's, it's a lot less than that, but 7 out of 10. So grab some of those little invites and invite your friends, especially those that are, uh, you know, without church and are maybe far from God. You'll be surprised at how many people will say they'll come. And next week it's going to be at the perfect opportunity for them to get to feel what it feels like just to be accepted, just to be a part, uh, just to be really to experience God, maybe for the first time. So I want to encourage you to do that. It is Passion Week, they, they call this week. And as I was thinking about it, I started thinking, you know, Christianity's kind of weird, really, you know? If you think about it from, a, from an outside perspective, I mean, this is Passion Week, and then we have Good Fridays coming up, right? And think about that. Good Fr- You call it Good Friday. Think back 2,000 years, and the guy comes home to his wife, and how was your day-to-day honey well it was a good Friday we crucified these three guys see it doesn't make sense does it you start to think about that it's like why do we call it good well let's find out what's going on I know you've probably thought about Good Friday and, and the crucifixion from Jesus point of view maybe in the passion of the Christ you watched that movie and and, and saw some of what it was like for him You've probably considered it from your point of view, but I want us to look at it this morning from a, another perspective, maybe that you haven't thought about before. I want us to look at the crucifixion from the point of view of God the Father. And the, the, the cool thing about the Bible is it doesn't leave us wondering. God lets us know how he felt. Now, to figure out how God the Father felt, though, we have to go back another 2,000 years before Christ. 4,000 years ago. And there was this guy 4,000 years ago that the Old Testament says was a friend of God. He walked with God so much that God called him friend. Can you imagine? That would be an amazing thing for God to call you my friend. And God would show him things that he was going to do. Things that were about to happen immediately. Things that wouldn't happen for thousands of years. He was showing him. This guy's name was Abraham. And Abraham was one of the the few God followers of that time. He was a God seeker. Probably weren't more than five or ten in the whole world at the time. And he was one of those guys. And God spoke to him one day and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave where you live in Ur of the Chaldees. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. We call it the promised land, right? And that's where he went. He went to the land where Israel is now. And he made his home there. And then God said, another thing I want to do, Abraham, I want to show you. I'm going to give you a son. And through your son's line, down through the ages, I'm going to bless the whole world. A deliverer will come from his line. And I'm going to bless the world through that. Well, Abraham and Sarah had tried to have kids. And they... They couldn't conceive, and, and they tried over the years and tried to believe God until they got really quite old, way past childbearing years, and 
Then an angel came. It says just a messenger came and walked up to him one day and and said, this time next year you're going to have a son. And Sarah, who was pretty old by this time, she just laughed because she knew it was impossible. She said, you know, she was listening in the other room to the angel talking to Abraham. She just laughed. But they had a son. You know what she named him? Isaac. It means laughter. She was remembering that she had laughed at God's promise, but God's promise always came through. And then we get to the passage today. And this passage is one of the most amazing, one of the most controversial, one of the most, well, it's really a crazy passage when you look at it, almost from any perspective. And trying to figure out what God is doing, what God is saying. So as we look at this passage, we need to realize Abraham's been asking God, God, what do you mean you're going to bless the whole world through Isaac's line? What, what does that mean? What is this deliverer about? What does that all mean? And so God showed him one day through a, a, what the Bible calls a test. And as we read this passage, I want you to kind of pull back. Don't, if you grew up in Sunday school or or something, and you've heard this before, you kind of get inoculated to it. It doesn't seem quite so radically wild. But I want you to think of it, try to imagine it like you're hearing it for the very first time. Imagine that you've never heard this story before. Put yourself in Abraham's place. He doesn't know how it's going to end. And let's look at that passage together. Genesis 22, and 1 through 14. I'm just going to read the whole passage, okay? So here's Abraham, he has Isaac, Isaac is now probably 10 years old, 12 years old, 13, somewhere in that range, and it says this, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. I just, what? What, what is going on here? Who, I thought I knew God. Who is this God? So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham, Abraham raised his eyes. It took him three days to walk there. Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood And bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Our horror, our, our shock, our awe that, that this would even be a story in the Bible. What is God thinking? What is God doing? And it's interesting because scholars, even secular scholars, have long considered this one of the great narratives of ancient writings compared up there to the Iliad and the Odyssey. And, but what's interesting about this passage, when you look at Moses who wrote this, his narrative style, he uses few words, doesn't he? It's almost like a, a, a silhouette of a picture or something. And you, like you can see Abraham, you can see the morning sun coming, you can imagine him chopping the wood upon which he believes he's going to burn the corpse of his son. Homer in his Iliad and his Odyssey and all the others, he was very wordy. Most of the ancient writers were. And if Homer had written this passage, it would be written, it would be page after page after page. But Moses doesn't do it that way. What Moses does, he just tells it in simple terms, just the basics, kind of an economy of words, and he leaves us to put ourselves in the story. What was Abraham thinking? What did Abraham tell Sarah? What, did, what went through his mind? I mean, as you imagine, Abraham, as he gets closer and closer to this Moriah, this Mount Moriah, he begins to slow down. He knows what's coming. And it probably takes all of his effort just to put one foot in front of the other. And his little Isaac, who he loves with all that he is. The little child of promise. You, you see all of these things. What, what is Abraham thinking? What is God doing? How could a loving God Ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son. Does God condone human sacrifice? Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of the great scholars of the past, Bible scholars, and he says this, God is showing us something in story form. It's a true story. It actually happened, but what you call it is a type, a parable of the heavenly father offering up his only son. It was designed to illustrate for us what God himself would later do with his own son. So far from condoning child sacrifice because God knew how the story was going to end. It's showing us God's love in an unforgettable way which every single one of us in this room that is a parent can identify with. It's interesting, but Moriah, he says, go to the land of Moriah. It means foreshadowing or foreseen of God. 
I don't know about you, but I love a good book. I, I mean, I, it, it's hard to find a good one. You know, usually if you, you're reading a novel sometimes and you still kind of know what's going on around you, that's not a good one to me. When, when you get into a novel that you just, you lose yourself, right? And, and you just, you're in it, you're with it. My wife will be calling to me, a television will be, I'll miss everything, right? Because I'm in it. And every good novel always has a little bit of foreshadowing of what's to come to kind of keep you hooked, you know? Even good television shows do that. They always end with that, right? Like a little foreshadowing, like, and you're going like, oh, no. And if it's Netflix, then you just go to the next one and you stay up all night watching one, right? But here, here's, here's the thing. God's writing an epic story with the sons and daughters of men. He's planned it from the past. Abraham was part of this early story, and God is foreshadowing what is to come. The story's speeding up now. We're getting to the conclusion of it. He's given us little clues in Scripture about how that's going to turn out too. And he wants you to be a part of the story. Are you in? Are you a part? Abraham was. And what God was doing, he was showing Abraham what he had requested, how all the families of the earth would be blessed through Isaac's line. By taking Abraham to the very point of killing Isaac, the Lord allowed him to enter as close as any human being ever could into what it felt like to be God the Father on Good Friday. It's interesting because once Jesus was talking to a group of Jewish religious leaders and, and they were asking about his credentials and stuff and they were ridiculing and saying, you can't be the Messiah, you can't be the chosen one, the deliverer. And, and Jesus said, it's so interesting because your father Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And then they really began to make fun of him. He said, you're, not even, you're like 30 years old, dude. And you're saying you saw Abraham? Now we know that, that you're crazy. Now we know that you're, you got a demon or something inside. I mean, you're just nuts. But what was Jesus referring to? This passage. Somehow in Abraham's mind, it clicked. Moses doesn't give us the whole story. Maybe God explained more to him. Or maybe he just saw it in an instant of insight. But he saw what was going to happen 2,000 years later on what's interesting another peak of the very same mountain Mount Moriah a, a, a little peak called Golgotha the place of the skull the Lord had invited Abraham into his own story and Abraham was going through what God the Father would experience only you have to multiply it a million times over behold the fire and the wood but daddy, where's the lamb for, for the burnt offering? Can you imagine what Abraham must have felt? I, I don't think those words just came out like you see them there, like God will provide for himself a lamb. I think it was probably choked out, don't you? I, I mean, tears in his eyes. And, and Isaac's already wondering, what, what's happening here? What's, what's going on? Can't you feel the wrenching of Abraham's heart in that moment? His heavy feet. As he dragged them toward the mountain. Think about God's heart. The heavenly father. There was Jesus tears 
in Gethsemane, the, the, the garden. Right before he was betrayed, he knew it was coming. He knew what was about to happen and he was down on his hands and knees and he's sweating so hard that it just is almost as if blood's just pouring off of him. And he says, Daddy, if it's possible, will you let this cup pass from me? What cup is he talking about? The crucifixion, what we saw in the passion of the Christ and all of that horror, but much more than that because what you couldn't see there was the spiritual side where he was taking the sin of the world upon himself. Can you imagine what it felt like to take your sin upon himself on the cross? The sin of every single one of us. From the mass murderer to the person who's self-righteous and proud. Every one of those sins. And he took them on himself. So... The story has a different ending that time. It doesn't end the same way. There is no lamb found for the Son of God. He is our lamb that's sacrificed. So God the daddy and God the son, they go out of the garden together. They go into the hands of the mob. They are ridiculed and beaten and scourged. God the father's there. He sees it. As his only begotten son is treated that way. The crown of thorns put on. The heavy wood put upon his back like it was on Isaac's back 2,000 years before. What a foreshadowing that we see. And them falling beneath the weight of it until they got someone else to come and carry it the rest of the way up. As the sun begins to come up over that little side peak of Mount Moriah, Golgotha. And... We see them go together through all of it. There's a price for sin, and it must be paid. God's perfect justice demands it. So that's the work of the cross. Uh, the, the work that was enacted in type, in story form, in, in, in real life, but an acted out parable that Abraham didn't really know what he was doing, but he was showing us 2,000 years before what was going to happen on the cross. It was acted out in reality 2,000 years ago for us on the cross. James Boyce writes about the distress that Abraham must have faced when God told him to sacrifice his son. He's another scholar that, of renown. Let me just read it to you. God had told Abraham that Isaac was to live, to marry, and have a family. And that from that family would come one who would be the deliverer. Now God asks that Isaac be sacrificed. And for the first time in all of Abraham's experience with God, he's confronted by a conflict between God's command and God's promise. Earlier, Abraham had been tested as to whether he would believe that God could do the seemingly impossible task of giving Abraham and Sarah a son. That's a hard test. But this, this is so much harder. This test involved a conflict apparently with the very words of God himself. He said, I will bless the world through Isaac's line. And then he said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac before he ever had a line or a lineage. Where did Abraham find the strength 
to carry through, to go all the way to the mountain? I think the answer is found in verse 5. Look at it there. In verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and we will return to you. What's he saying there? He's saying we're going to go worship and we're going to come back. Now, he's going to sacrifice Isaac, so how's he going to come back? The book of Hebrews in the New Testament sheds a little light. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Interesting. Abraham believed in resurrection. Never had happened. No one had ever been raised from the dead. Jesus wasn't here. He didn't raise Lazarus. He, there was no Easter. There was no little girl that Jesus said, I tell you, little girl, arise. And she wakes up from the dead. No one had ever seen that. And yet Abraham believed he was going to sacrifice Isaac. And God's promises were so true that God would raise him up again. Because God never didn't keep his promises. He saw that over and over. God was a promise-keeping God. He believed what God said, and he knew God's heart. He must have thought something like this. God has promised me through Isaac, the whole world's going to be blessed through his family going down the line, and now he's asked me to sacrifice him. It doesn't make any sense. God must be getting ready to do something amazing here. He he's, must be going to raise my son from the dead after I sacrifice him. I, I don't know what he's going to do, but I know it's through Isaac. He promised it was through Isaac. So he tells the young men, we'll both come back to you. I know God well enough to know that. Ray Stedman says this, Abraham risked everything he owned and loved upon the character of God and found him to be a God of resurrection. And you know, my little brothers and sisters today, honestly, that is the, the Christian life, isn't it? It's resting everything we are upon the character of God, trusting in Him, depending upon Him. And no matter the circumstances of your life, no matter the confusion that you might have right now with His management of your little world or our big world, for that matter, I've been asking lots of questions to God about that. What in the world is going on with this? That doesn't make any sense to me. I can't figure out why you allow this to happen. I don't understand what you're doing. You know, the Bible says clearly that we're not going to understand, that his thoughts are so much higher than ours, his ways than ours. What's going to happen? What's he doing? God, what are you about in the Bible, there's nothing of the, like the chatty, cliche kind of certainty about God's purpose, you know, that, that we hear from sometimes from preachers today. It, it's sometimes just like painful what he asks us to do. God, I don't understand why you're allowing me to go through this. I don't get it. 
but to trust him. To put one foot in front of the other. To keep moving forward into him when you don't understand. That's what Abraham was doing. That's the Christian life. That's what it really looks like. Karen Watson was a missionary and worker, uh, an aid worker. She was killed in Iraq in an ambush. She had written a letter to her pastors in case of her death to be opened. Let me just read a little bit of it to you. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I'm still working among my people group. She closes by saying, care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. I was not called to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too so much and my church family. Salam, Karen. Where do you find that kind of courage? It's in the Father love of God. It's knowing that you can trust his heart no matter what happened? See, I, I never really knew how much my dad loved me until I had kids. And I thought, I would give my life for these kids. And then I realized, that's how much he loved me. And God loves me as my father even more. One of the, the, the great schemes of Satan, I think, in modern day America is to rob us of strong fathers. I, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, narcissistic, selfish fathers there's plenty of passive fathers there's there's plenty of weak fathers there's plenty of uh, of absentee fathers and if you don't have a strong father that that fills that hole for you that gap for you it's going to be really really hard for you to trust God's heart and the devil he knows that so he's really started to try to break down the family and especially you see it with the men but I'm telling you, if you will allow him, even if you've never had that father, if you will allow him to be that, if you will trust that he can be that, you'll begin to see what it really looks like, what it really feels like. The Bible says this, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not also freely give us all things? See, that's what this story is about. He's showing us how much he loves us. And Abraham speaks, he says to his son, God will provide for himself a lamb. It's a prophecy. Not to be completed until 2,000 years later. You can see it in the name that Moses gave to Mount Moriah at that time. It says, Moses called the name of the place Yahweh Yireh. Jehovah Jireh, it's transliterated. The Lord will provide. And it's so important, the, the verb there. If he was thinking about the ram caught in the thicket, he would have said the Lord has provided. He said the Lord 
will provide. I see it now. I see it coming. I see what's going to happen. I see the deliverer coming. And there's one last thing. I think it's extremely important in this passage. This passage brings out our great need for a Savior. You see, one of the things that seems to be preached in a lot of modern day churches is that you're doing pretty good. You guys are doing all right. And, you know, but if you would just, you know, you really want to get way up here, next level, add Jesus in there. Just, just put Jesus in there with that, and, and you won't believe how much he's going to help you. And he's going to help you be comfortable. I mean, the whole American dream can be yours, you know. That's not what the Bible, that's not the gospel of the Bible. The Bible says that we are desperately lost, that without what Christ did on the cross, we're toast. That's what it says, basically. Uh, that, that there's no way that we could ever get to God, that there's no way that we could be good enough. And so God, he loved us and he wanted us to be in his story. So he sent his son down to die. There, there's a weird law in the universe that God has implemented that I wouldn't have even understood because I don't understand God. But it's, it's written, the Bible tells us about it. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now that seems kind of foreign to our minds today. But the fact is, it's as true today as it ever was. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so God began to show the people what was to come. You see, the wages, the Bible says, of, the sin, of sin is death. And death, when it says death like that, it means being where God is not. God and death, they don't go together because God is life. So if there's death, that's not where God is. What we're talking about, physical death here, is just a moment that moves us into another dimension. But the death they're talking about there is an eternal thing where God is not. And all of us deserve it because all of us have sin in our life. And yet God said, I love you so much, little girl. I love you so much, little, little, little boy. I want to make you my daughter. I want to make you my son. I'm going to send my only son to die. His shed blood will take your place. But you have to accept it. You have to receive it. I know it's foreign to our minds. But it's God's way. I was talking to a gal in Mexico City one time when we were missionaries there. And she says, you know, Mark, I, I, I like this whole idea. And, I, I, you know, I believe in Jesus and I believe the crucifixion and all that. But I just think there are many ways to God. And I told her, I said, well, then God must be really stupid. He must be a, a masochist or something. And she says, what are you talking about? And, and, and I said, because... Did you see in the passion of the Christ what Jesus had to go through? She said, yeah. And you're telling me there are many ways and he just let his son go through that because that's just one way? That doesn't make any sense to me from a loving father. See, he had to wrench his heart out and he watched his son go through that because there was only one way. Many years ago, there was a a missionary to India by the name of David Morse. And David made a, a really good friend, a guy by the name of Ramba. He was, a, he was a, a pearl diver on the coast of India and pretty famous. And Ramba was much older than David Morse, but they became really fast friends, really close friends. And, and, and 
as their friendship grew, David would tell Ramba about the love of God and about the cross and about the crucifixion. And Ramba would always say, that just sounds, I mean, it sounds too easy, actually. I, I, I just feel like I need to do some things to earn this. And, and so when Ramba got to be a very old man, and he didn't feel like he had much time to live, he told David Morris, he said, tomorrow I'm going to leave on a journey, my final journey. I'm going to crawl on my hands and knees from the coasts of India all the way to Delhi. He says, I don't think I'll make it. I'll die along the way, but God will see that I'm serious and will accept me into his heaven. And David Morse again tried to share with him, but he wouldn't hear it. The morning came for Ramba to leave, and he asked David Morse to come over to his house, and he pulled out this strong box, and he opened it up, and, and inside he had another little wooden box. And then he told David, David Morse something. Ramba told him that, that David Morse hadn't known. He said that he had had a son. And Ramba said, my son was the greatest pearl diver that this coast of India had ever seen. And he was always searching for the perfect pearl. And then he opened the box and there was this magnificent pearl. Like David Morse, something he had never seen before. Worth, it, it was it worth millions, obviously. And he said, to get this pearl, he went down too deep. And he stayed too long. And he got back to the surface with the pearl, but he died anyway. And he said, I want to give this pearl to you, my best friend. Because I know I won't be coming back. And in that moment, God gave David Morse something to say. He said, Ramba, oh, this, that isn't a magnificent pearl. I will buy that from you. I'll give you $10,000 for that pearl. And Ramba said, what? And he said, I'll give you 15000 And Ramba was totally offended. He said, this, I wouldn't take millions for this. This is priceless. This costs the life of my son. But I'm giving it to you. And he said, oh, Ramba, Maybe it's my pride, but I just feel like I need to pay you something for this. This just can't, you can't give it to me. I've, I've got to do something. And Ramba was just about to get really offended and turn away when David Morse grabbed his hand and he said, don't you see that's what you've been doing to God? God said, I love you so much. There's no way you can ever get to me. I can't have sin in my presence. I'm perfect. Every sin must be punished. I'm perfectly just. Always. I'm going to send my son to take the punishment for you. And when Jesus died on the cross, that's why they call it Good Friday. Because he took our punishment. And as we reach out to him and say, I receive what you did for me on the cross. What he does for us, he brings a resurrection like what happened to him three days later in our lives. It changes us. Everything's different. Ramba saw it. They knelt together. And he prayed and he said, Jesus Christ, I trust what you did for me. Father God, I receive your gift to me. And I move into that. He never went to Delhi. But he lived out the rest of his days telling everyone around him the good news. The word for good news is gospel. That's why we call it the gospel.
I want you to close your eyes with me for just a minute. There are probably a few hundred of us here that saw what salvation is for the very first time. I've been praying for you. There's so many voices out there. There are so many people saying, be good enough, let your good outweigh your bad, try to treat your human counterparts with respect, all of these things. This is how you make your way to God. Warren Buffett recently said, I'm going to start giving my billions away and earn a place in heaven. There's no earning a place with God. The price is too high. The price is death. We've all sinned and fallen short of that. But God loves us so much that he bent down and he broke through time and space and he tore out his heart. That was Jesus. And somehow when Jesus died on the cross... Somehow, I don't understand it. He took our place, our punishment. But we have to receive it. It's out there as an offer, but we have to receive the gift. That's why when someone says receive Christ, that's what they're talking about. It's hard. Sometimes we just seem to make it so easy and water down. This means you're giving everything you are to him. I receive you, this gift that you gave me. I come just as I am. I'm not going to try to clean myself up anymore. You can't clean yourself up and come. It's not going to work. That's where the power of the Christian life comes from. We'll talk about that next week.